Plastic pollution is a global challenge. You've all heard the stories and seen the photos. And to be honest, as a dad, it's tough trying to explain this to my kids. How do you explain dead whales washing up on beaches around the world, their stomachs jam-packed with plastic bags? Or albatross chicks photographed off the coast of Hawaii, their bodies filled to the brim with plastic they've mistaken for food. This is Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada. How do I tell them that against all odds, you'll find plastic at the very deepest point of the Pacific Ocean, 36,000 feet down? And how do I broach the fact that plastic is finding its way into our bodies, too, as we ingest tens of thousands of microplastic particles each year. Making sense of this new reality for my kids isn't a struggle I face alone. People around the world are grappling with this every day. Trudeau is speaking here in 2019 and is giving what may turn out to be one of the most important speeches in his political career. In 2019, he began a campaign against waste materials specifically against single-use plastics, which were listed as a toxic material in Canada in May of this year. It is still too early to try and assess the full impact of this action. But one thing is for sure. The Canadian government is increasingly taking aim at waste materials, and before long, there will be a lot of companies desperate to find a use for the immense quantity of the material they generate. It will be up to businesses to take responsibility for the plastics they're manufacturing coming out into the world. Not only will this be good for our planet, but it'll result in huge economic gains too. Currently, Canadians throw away $8 billion worth of plastic material every single year. By recycling or reusing these plastics, we can reduce pollution, generate billions of dollars in revenue and create approximately 42,000 jobs across the country. This is what it means to innovate for the future, protect the environment and grow the middle class. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Tim Sheehan. In this episode, we have partnered with Trojan, a manufacturer of railway cable troughs from recycled polymer. You might remember them from the episode 104, Solving Rail's Hidden Hazard, which we have linked to in the show notes. In that episode, we looked at some of the handling problems and injuries that result from installing and opening traditional concrete troughs. Basically, railway troughs are littered containers that house all of the power and service cables for the railway. Traditionally, these have been heavy but brittle concrete containers. Trojan supplies lightweight, durable, recycled plastic equivalents. They are a small family business based in the UK, but in recent years they have launched a division in Canada. The two countries have a lot of similarities, but some big differences in the way the industry operates. Averting environmental disaster will require all of us to work together and learn from each other's experience. And for this small family company, originally founded on the south coast of England, having each foot in a different world gives some interesting perspectives. This is a story about sustainability and the circular economy. So to understand the story, first we need to make sure we are up to speed on what this means for infrastructure and construction. And for this part of the story, we begin in the UK. 
which has the more mature reprocessing industry of the two. But the actual projects we build do not necessarily innovate enough to take advantage of it. Reuse and construction is often limited because a lot of it comes from the lack of provenance and a lack of understanding where things have come from, the history behind it, what standards was it manufactured to, how has it been maintained. So when you, you if you don't have that information, it can really limit the reuse of new materials. This is Alan Sanderlands. He is the circular economy lead at an environmental consultancy called Resource Futures. So what often ha happens is that we recycle. The construction industry, particularly in the UK, has got one of the best recycling rates out there. It's in the high 90% every year, the 90s. But that's often downgraded. It's downgraded things to its lowest use. For example, concrete is crushed into aggregate. Lots of materials are not reused in their current or similar form. I think because of that lack of knowledge and the business models that if you are a supplier and your job is to sell something and walk away, trying to incentivize that type of business to think about how can I be more responsible for that product throughout its life and its end of life. Um, and it, it's, it takes a number of seismic shifts to kind of make certain people wake up to that. The industry is made up of all sorts of different types of companies and organisations, a lot of different types of clients. You'll have speculative developers who build things and walk away after that one development and they might never build anything ever again. You know, it's you get one-off developers, you get repeat developers. And I think the, the opportunities for circular economy and sustainability need to be targeted at repeat developers repeat builders, people who own large estates. It is not useful to focus on an individual house owner or a company building a new HQ. It is people filling repeat orders that are the most significant. We should be targeting the people who are, have a large repeat impact on the environment because the scale of change uh, and the ability to influence, but also the ability for them to realise the benefits. Sustainability's always been a hard sell because it usually involves a higher capital cost, but you're trying to tell them that there's a, a whole life cost benefit there. But that only really is realised when that person is interested in the long term. And a build and walk away company like a mass house builder is not really interested in some circular concepts. For example, the durability of the product, it just needs to last a certain amount of time for them. The recoverability of the product, has it been designed for deconstruction? All of these things that actually become more important to clients who own and operate an, ass an estate and an asset, and that's where we feel the kind of the win-win scenarios start to come through. The examples of projects that have really good practice are just that. Examples. They are often niche or one-off pilots. I heard someone in Wales said that they've got more pilots than the RAF and I just thought that was a great example of the thinking that seems to be going in. It's, it's pilots rather than mainstream and I think our building standards etc are slow to come up and lift the bar for everyone. And that's what needs to happen to make change fast rather than just these niche or exemplars that we've seen so far. 
But in the last five years, wasting resources has skyrocketed up the agenda. Our position is improving, at least in terms of awareness. It always used to be the, the poor cousin to energy, but now we're starting to see embodied energy, embodied carbon coming much, much more to fruition. And that is basically waste and materials. So people are starting to switch on to that. The, the growth of net zero aspirations is starting to, to take impact as well. But yeah, my, my problem is that it's not being considered fast enough from a mainstream perspective. So it is the major project owners and major clients that need to take the lead on this. And for Alan, that begins with the public sector. But the reality is, if it's the people, the councils, it's the, the local authorities, it's the NHS, it's the universities. The public sector estate really needs to start leading on this. And that's always what governments ask public sector to do, but there's a definite lag between the ask from government and then the implementation of it on, on projects. The public sector has started to know that they need to be net zero, but there are some interesting definitions of what net zero entails. And it's like, well, you're leaving out vast swathes of things that should be in scope. And I think a lot of that comes back to they've, they've not been comfortable measuring a lot of things to date. So they need to go back to the basics and start measuring these things first before they can then include them in their definition, which I understand, but I'm not seeing them getting on with measuring them either. You know, so you can't set a target to reduce embodied carbon until you've started to calculate embodied carbon on your projects. So you need to start doing that now to then be able to then set targets. Uh, and we are starting to see guidance documents start to come out, voluntary guidance documents with targets in them. But how many people are going to sign up to voluntary guidance documents? It's all carrot, 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 and not enough stick, in my opinion. For some materials, the stick is coming. And one of those, as in Canada, is plastic. And the UK is taking its first steps against plastic with a tax due to take effect in a year's time. And likely more legislation will follow as the international community takes a dimmer view on wasted material. We have a system where we have a product which can be recycled, but is not being captured through the various infrastructure that we've got just now to recycle it. So we've got a very low recycling rate for plastics and obviously it comes in many different forms and the identification of it is a challenge. So there's, there really is a need to invest in infrastructure to start to capture plastics, assess them, grade them, and then determine and try and put them back into a closed loop system. And obviously the plastics tax is one way of the government trying to incentivize industry to start to put these steps in place and to consider the design and the choice of materials and basically try to increase the recyclability. Is it a case of saying that we want a minimum of 35% recycled content in our products? And supply chains will have to start to adapt to that. And that's when we'll start to see the linkage between the waste industry and the manufacturing industry starting to become closer and closer together. And at the moment, with such a small proportion of recoverable plastics being recycled, everyone who wants to get hold of high-grade recycled plastic can do so quite cheaply. But as industry is incentivized to reuse plastic, 
the demand for this material will increase and the price will increase. And Alan thinks we may even see a run on recovered plastics as a result of these legislative changes. Plastic as a scarce resource. Well, I think what's what will be scarce at the moment is the easily recoverable stuff. Um, and when you start to think about the harder to recover plastics, I know I don't think that will run out. So although reprocessed plastic and other materials may become an in-demand resource, that is a good problem to have, and first we need to get there. Yes, yeah, so it's certainly obviously a, I mean, it's a, it's a big step. As you said, the government has classified waste plastic as toxic, which I believe in the next couple of years, or maybe sooner, will we'll sort of change a lot of rules around how plastic is dealt with in the supply chain. This is Thomas Bai. He's the operations manager for Trotroff Composites, based in Calgary in Canada. He supplies a number of Canadian rail projects with troughs made from 100% reprocessed waste plastic and expects to see more demand following the recent Canadian legislative changes. All the major companies and minor companies are all working towards reducing their CO2 impact, they're reducing their um, waste, they're trying to reduce their environmental impact. And so if you look at some of the, the major high-speed rail projects that we're currently involved with, when you scale up. You begin to talk about some serious volumes of plastic. It is something that Thomas is trying to encourage and drive forward. Ironically, the Canadian market has the opposite problem to the UK. The ambition is there, but. One of the big challenges I would say in the North American market is that the, the recycling supply chain is not as, not as mature, not as advanced as the European supply chain. So whilst the volume is available somewhere, obviously, given the, the scale of the countries and the population size, especially down in the States. Getting that to a point where it can be used is more challenging than, than the UK. Having said that, we've managed it, we're doing it, and uh, hopefully we can kind of bring along, a, bring along a recycling movement with us kind of thing to help supply it. The industry is also set up differently to that in the UK from a culture perspective and from the amount of capital investment. Thomas originally worked for the UK's rail owner and operator, Network Rail, as a scheme project manager before moving out to Canada. So he has a good awareness of the rail industry in both countries. But yeah, it's it's a different structure in that the projects are, there's more of them. <laughs> there's a lot of capital expenditure. There's a very different process in terms of design approval and product approval. The big kind of headline item is there is no such thing as product approval as UK listeners with Network Rail would know. There is a process to follow which is set by each project or each client. Which is not to say standards are lower. A product has to be proven to work, it has to be safe and perform as it should. But these requirements are determined by the project engineering team. Testing would involve theoretical simulations for loading, physical weathering tests, UV rating and checking the recycling supply chain claims. In theory, this process to approve a new product could all be done within a few weeks if needed. So they largely set their own specs, which is obviously very different to the UK market where it's industry-wide, it's been approved, 
you can use it, you're on a list kind of thing. And then suppliers and contractors pick from a product approved range of products to solve their problem. Whereas over here, it's, it's very much more, uh, we have a problem, how can we solve it with a product? And if the product then meets the requirements of performance, safety, durability, price is obviously a big one. Projects in Canada are currently often tendered in a design, build, finance, then maintain for 30 years model. It means that project owners are very interested in whole life costs, which in the case of cable troughing means the longer lifespan recycled polymer results in a win over the more traditional concrete. One of the requirements Thomas and his team face in North America is an extreme temperature range compared to what is experienced in the temperate UK. The specification they often encounter is minus 40 degrees Celsius to plus 70, while network rail specifies minus 25 to plus 50. To meet the UK specification, they tested from minus 40 to plus 65. To meet the North American specification, they tested from minus 50 to plus 80. So it wasn't a problem, but it was an interesting difference in moving to the new continent. Uh, we don't normally get involved in the specification development. Obviously, a lot of it is a, is a flow down from, a, from an end client to a contractor, to a subcontractor, to a supplier, potentially. But we certainly offer advice on installation, best practices. Obviously, the UK is heavily driven by possession work. So you've got to be in, you've got to be out. There's limited time windows to do work. You're often working adjacent to operational lines. It's a different market. In North America, there's maybe more time to do these projects. They're often greenfield construction sites. However, saying that, you know, time is money for the contractors. So if they can install the troughing quicker and safer, then of course they're interested. And we certainly help them with that, bringing over some, some sort of lessons learned and best practices from the UK market. So things that we've learned in the UK, very, very useful when we get into detailed discussion with the project engineers, the construction guys. I'll give you a for instance. This is Stuart Wellens. He's the CEO and founder of Trojan, and he last spoke to us for episode 104, Solving Rail's Hidden Hazard. On Erdry Bathgate, which was an, the first uh, new piece of railway in the UK for 100 years, it was reopening what, what was an old track turned into a cycle lane and now converted back to a track and it's up in Scotland between Glasgow and uh, Edinburgh. The new section of rail was 25 kilometres long and there was an installation mistake. What the guys did was to install our troughing before they ballasted the track. So when they ballasted the track they basically dumped 500 tonnes of ballast and dozed it up against our troughs. And of course, the troughs were not there to act as a ballast retention. So they had to straighten the troughs afterwards. It, it, it was a bit of a nightmare. In the States, we're having those discussions with some major projects uh, who are intending to do something similar. But because of the experience in the UK, that's an obvious thing to stop. And Stuart says that there's a lot of experience from the UK rail sector that is transferable to North America. It's not just a sustainability discussion. There is an engineering heritage and a whole systems approach to railways in the UK, which ensures interdisciplinary checks and understanding. It's well worth emulating. 
But now Stuart wonders what approaches from Canada the UK could benefit from. The Canadian market is substantially different from the UK market. Even though they've got a, a, a huge network of, of railways, they are very open to ideas. One of the things I, I really like to see, and we are working towards this, particularly with High Speed 2, is utilising the technology we're using now in North America, uh, which is somewhat different from the traditional methods of producing here in the UK. In the UK, we use a standard injection moulding process, which is relatively high pressure. Whereas in Canada, we're now using, using a structural foam process, which is much more low pressure. Uh, it produces a lighter unit, but also it's much more efficient in terms of the, um, the processing and the uh, dwell times in the mould. So it is really a, a big advance a big advancement in what we're doing in the UK. So I'd like to see that come over to the UK. We are going to be using that for uh, high speed too, should we be successful. Um, so yes, uh, there will be a, a technology transfer if you like. HS2 is a big modern project and is making a special push for innovation with success. But elsewhere in the UK, one of the main stumbling blocks for introducing a new product into the industry is tradition. So a lot of the test methods, a lot of the ideology is framed around specifications which were formed 75, 80, 90 years ago. And it's, it was very difficult to kind of challenge those products and introduce something novel. Whereas in Canada, they seem to be far more open to ideas and not as set in the ways. So it's, 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 it's been quite refreshing. And that's no criticism of the UK market, or, you know, our customers in the UK, but it's refreshing to have this openness and acceptance of new ideas and new products. And this is also allowing Trojan to create a new market for recycled materials in North America, a new destination for recycled plastic. In Canada, currently, we're running at probably 5,000 tonnes a year. But as we get into these bigger projects, we're talking of tens of thousands of tonnes of material. It could run up to 20,000 tonnes per annum over the next five years if we're successful in securing these bigger contracts. Stuart and Thomas have recently commissioned a consultant to undertake a complete study of the recycled plastics market to assess its capabilities, who the major suppliers are and the availability of materials. We're talking with environmental specialists in Canada and the States to ensure that our strategy doesn't cross over any environmental laws or issues so we are making ourselves aware of what the overall market is 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 about and what it's doing so yeah we are taking on experts as we go along so depending on the type of plastic product supplier you are the recent move by the canadian government is either bad news or fantastic news in either case the time for suppliers to react to these new changes in legislation is now. We've discussed how we address toxic plastics, as Trudeau has said, 
We don't see it like that. We see it as a tremendous opportunity because what we're doing is taking plastic, waste plastic, and reusing that waste plastic and producing something which is environmentally beneficial. So it's a great, it's a great story for us with Monsieur Trudeau to say, well, look, you know, we will take this waste and save you carbon because we're going to use it to replace concrete. So for us, it's a tremendous opportunity as well uh, on the face of it, it sounds like we're, we're going to be in difficult circumstances because all plastics are toxic. But no, if you look at that and, and investigate what he's actually saying, we, we're an answer to his dreams. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. And me, Tim Sheehan. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our reprocessed executive producer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner Trojan and also to Resource Futures. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn.